everyone and welcome to episode 37 of the Single Mother's Survival Guide podcast. My name is Julia Husher and I'm really excited about today's guest because she is a family lawyer. In fact, she's known as the happy family lawyer. Her name is Clarissa Wayward and we were talking all about better ways to divorce and how to make your divorce a almost happy experience in your life. And I know when I sort of thought about this, I thought, what? But Clarissa gives us some really great, great tips on how to have an amicable divorce that does not involve toxicity and fighting and negativity and that it really can be, you know, a positive, a positive almost experience. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode and take away a lot from it and we'll get straight into it now. On the show with me today, I have Clarissa Raywood. Clarissa is a family lawyer, wife, and mum who is passionate about relationships, people, and family. Clarissa is the director of Brisbane Family Law Centre, a boutique family law practice, and she uses her industry knowledge and skill to change the way Australian families experience divorce and separation. She is known as the happy family lawyer as she believes that your divorce can be part of your marriage that you can look back on with pride. She is also the author of the successful Happy Family Lawyer blog, which provides weekly commentary and tips on issues relating to divorce and the book Splitsville, How to Separate, Stay Out of Court and Stay Friends. In January of this year, 2017, Clarissa published her second book, Happy Lawyer, Happy Life, How to Be Happy in Law and in Life for Lawyers Looking for Better Ways to Practice Law After Launching a Successful Podcast by the Same Name. Clarissa has now turned her attention to addressing the high rates of depression and anxiety amongst lawyers by opening a positive dialogue and how lawyers can find happiness in their careers. Hi, Clarissa. Thank you so much for coming on the show and thanks for fitting me in with all that amazing stuff that you do. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Okay, I'm so happy to have you here because we were going to have a bit of a talk about better ways to divorce and happiness. So first up, I wanted to talk to you about your belief and vision in a happy, kind, calm and respectful divorce because so many single parents that I know, the idea of a happy divorce is just you know, seems impossible. I think that's right. And I, I, I don't know, the more I've sort of spent worrying about this stuff and thinking about it and writing about it, um, for me, it comes back to almost from very young people, we're trained in Western society that when you have a relationship breakdown, even as like a teenager, girlfriend, boyfriend, that there's a whole lot of drama that has to ensue. And I even remember myself being a teenager and sort of learning that you can't be friends with an ex-boyfriend and it's quite odd if you're friends with an ex-boyfriend. So this whole dialogue starts for us very young and very early in life Um, and I think it flows through and it certainly for me flows through in the work that I do day in, day out here at my law firm because it is very difficult to remain respectful and to remain calm and um, to care about a person who's hurt you as much as often an ex-partner has. But gee, there are some significant benefits um, if you can do it. It's so much more important if you've got kids because yeah. it's the be-all and end-all. And, yeah. um, you know, it, the messages that we're sending to our children, obviously, every single day, we're, we're teaching them about life, whether we realise it or not. And it's our behaviour that they ultimately model um, and that they learn from. So demonstrating during a divorce or a separation the capacity to remain calm to accept others' points of view, to be hurt but at the same time to be kind are incredibly powerful lessons to be demonstrating to children. 
Yeah, absolutely. I guess you really set the tone when you're first separating. Is that you do? Like, you do. How can we get yeah. things off on the right foot from the very start? <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, no, it's a really good question. And obviously the way relationships come to an end is different for everybody. Um, and some people have a period of time where there's almost, you know, a winding down of the marriage or the relationship and there's almost a mutual understanding that things are not great versus other relationships where there's almost the fiery end, the dramatic thing that no one saw coming that's brought an end to something. Um, and some would say that the first is easier, but in my experience there's no easy way for a relationship to end, whether you see it coming or not it is equally difficult it's just a different emotion so for me if anyone said to me you know what's the one thing I can do that gives myself the best chance I'd say it's to slow down and it's almost to do nothing and I think again when we're in these heightened emotional states our natural sort of human reaction is to start doing stuff and if you you know seek input from others the stuff that they'd suggest you should do is often the damaging stuff it's the protect yourself all these terrible things are about to happen so I see people you know, locking doors and um, shutting people out of their lives, shutting people out of kids' lives, removing money from bank accounts, more just from a place of fear, a place of, I, you know, if I don't do this, then the other person might and I've got to protect myself. Yeah. Versus if you can just slow down and really say, what do we need to do today? If a relationship's come to an end, a significant relationship, putting aside risk, that's not the category I'm talking about right now. Um, but if you're not in a risk situation and really you're in a heartbreak situation, there's often nothing you need to do on day one that's any different than what you did yesterday other than just feel all of the emotion that's coming. And so you don't need to change your finances. You often don't need to change where you're living. I work with many couples that continue to live together after a separation, albeit in a you know difficult situation. But sometimes just that transition is really powerful and important and gives everyone a chance to think about what's right for them and make those decisions in a more considered way than sort of rushing in and doing a whole lot of stuff that a couple of months down the track you might think to yourself, golly, you know, had I only known, why would I have done that? Yeah. It's funny as well. I think a lot of women that I meet when they first become single mums, they're very positive and very sort of optimistic about the whole separation and co-parenting experience for the future. And they sort of say, oh, it's great. You know, we, we get along really well and yep, this is how we're going to manage the finances. This is how we're going to manage the kids. And in sort of so many of the cases in, you know, three months down the track, it's actually turned in, into this really volatile situation and it all seems like it could be great to begin with. But then, you know, like you said, it's, I think it's a protection thing. One of the parties will go and, you know, start seeing a lawyer or maybe that it's other influences like their family or friends saying, you have to do this, you have to do this, otherwise they're going to do that. And it just ends up being really awful and then there's lawyers involved and it's really sort of just sad I don't know it's it is really hard and it's it, you know it's easier to be angry than it is to be calm yeah. so it's it doesn't take much um it doesn't take much to to get into that headspace and you know again when people are in heartbreak you start to see the world through that sort of headspace and so you're, you know, the other partner might be doing something that in any other situation and in any other place and time would mean nothing. 
But now that they've really hurt you, you start to perceive that action or that behavior in a really different way. And you start to, to really look for all of those problems. And again, it's a natural human thing. So all of a sudden you're perceiving all of their behavior, which perhaps is, you know, not intended to be in any way difficult um, as being nothing but difficult and then before you know it you're in massive conflict or the flip side that's how they're perceiving your behavior so it's it is very easy to get into a very difficult place really quickly and I come back to saying if if people can take it a day at a time and I talk about getting into a holding pattern so if there's certainty about your financial circumstances there's certainty about arrangements for children for the first sort of eight to twelve weeks of any separation period in my experience those families work their way through if there's uncertainty on either of those issues in the first couple of weeks or months you can almost guarantee that it will become a very difficult legal situation very very quickly Okay. By uncertainty, do you mean the couple haven't sort of sat down and discussed the plan with the kids for the next eight to 12 weeks, sort of like living arrangements and that sort of thing? Yeah. Look, and some people don't even need to talk about it. Some people, somehow it just organically happens, which is yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's more that the couple are working from the same same song sheet. There may be no document, there may be no formality, but there is an almost an unwritten agreement that this is what's happening right now. And I may not love it, but I can live with it. You know, it's an okay interim scenario versus the other scenario where if, you know, if you're a woman and you've got no access to income, you can't, you you can't be sensible and calm and all of those great things that I'm talking about because you're thinking to yourself, well, how am I going to feed the kids this week? And how am I going to feed myself? And what about rent? And it's very normal that someone in those circumstances will escalate very quickly. So it's taking away, you know, those basic human things that send us all a bit bonkers and making sure that both people have somewhere to live, both people have access to enough money that they can provide for themselves and the children, um, and there's some clarity that the kids are going to be spending time with both of their parents. So if you've got at least the basics, it doesn't have to be really detailed, it doesn't have to be legally drafted, but those sort of basic things in place, there's a much greater chance of ultimately being able to find solutions that work in the long run. Yeah. Okay, what are your top tips for a happy divorce? Hmm. Um, slow, slow <laughs> wins the race. <laughs> That's the first thing. Um, I'm seeing a lot of products at the moment, and this is probably just me being a lawyer and in the, in this space, but I'm seeing a lot of products at the moment that are, you know, weekend divorce type products or come in and we'll do divorce in a day. And, you know, all of this notion of let's do this really quickly. And I actually don't think that's a really good solution for most people because the grief cycle that we experience on the breakdown of a significant relationship is said to be as significant as the death of a loved one. So there's potentially nothing more emotional that we could go through. Um, And I also find it ironic that usually when you're falling in love, you know, that happens over a series of months, sometimes even years. It doesn't generally happen in a day. So it makes sense then that falling out of love also takes time. And I think to really ultimately have a divorce that you can look back and say, I'm okay with that. You know, I'm proud of how I behaved. I'm proud of how my spouse behaved. I'm proud of what we both did. Mm. Even when things were really hard, I'm still proud of what I did. Um, That is going to take time because when you're in grief, your mind and your brain are not working well and you can't make good decisions. So you've got to let yourself deal with all of those emotions and take the time to think about what do I want my life to look like? How do I want things to move forward from here? Change is scary. Divorce is change. And, you know, 
as you said before, sometimes that initial thing is like, oh, this is good, you know, I'm optimistic about this. And then something goes wrong and it's very easy to fall back into a very negative headspace really fast. Yeah. So taking time, I would say to you, for me, is probably priority number one Yeah. in terms of finding happiness. Um, the second one, and I guess you touched on this too, Julia, it's being optimistic. And I describe it as finding silver linings. And I think... You know, sometimes when I write about this, people are quite rightly saying, well, Clarissa, that's fine for you. <laughs> You're not in the headspace that I'm in. My life's upside down. How on earth am I supposed to find silver linings when everything that could go wrong is going wrong? And I think that's the key, to be honest, is yeah. even when life is horrid to all of us and we never know what's going on in anyone's lives, um, it's your own capacity to say to yourself, okay, whatever's happened today you know, or yesterday, um, today's a fresh start and today I'm grateful for whatever it is, the fact that the sun came up and it was a beautiful sunrise or the fact that my daughter smiled at me or whatever, whatever's going on, you've got to find those little silver linings in the very grey storm cloud yeah. that will ultimately enable you to get through. So important. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing the power of practising gratitude because even if yeah. everything is so crappy, you will always, if you're looking for it, you will always find something, something small. And it's those little things that will keep you going and keep you happy and, you know, just looking for the positives. So you've always got to be grateful, I think. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, again, the neuroscience that's around at the moment, and I've been really looking at the, this research for my new sort of work in terms of happiness and, and lawyers, yeah. but the neuroscience tells us and shows us that we can literally retrain our brains. So brains, the way they're structured, quite rightly, our brains are designed to really pay attention to the negative. That's how we stay alive. That's how we stay safe. That's how we you know, live and function. But the problem with that mentality is that your brain is more alive to negative influences than it is positive. So gratitude practice is such a wonderful simple way of just retraining your brain to be more alive to the good things even when everything is really hard and really difficult yeah totally okay so taking your time and finding silver linings being optimistic they're my two big tips yeah what what about if you're dealing with someone who is really hostile or you know, that you really struggle to communicate with. What can we do? Because obviously you can't control what other people do. Um, what can we do to make it yeah. better if you're dealing with someone who's just, you know, horrid? Yeah, and there's plenty of that. <laughs> That's something I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. The first thing I'd say is work out whether you need to, <laughs> yeah, all the time, <laughs> work out what you actually need to communicate on. Like do you need to communicate at all? Um, and if you do, what are the key things that you need to communicate on and then put rules and boundaries around those things? So commonly people come and say to me, you know, here's all these text messages that I've received. Here's this barrage of emails that I received. This person keeps emailing me and calling me and telling me that I have to do this and I have to do that and I have to do this, I have to do that. And I often then say, well, what do you do? Oh, well, I respond. And to be honest, sometimes the simplest thing you can do is not respond. Yeah. So you need to work out if you've got kids, which is usually the driver for this sort of thing, what are the key things that you actually need to communicate around? And then you need to put boundaries to it and you need to set your own boundaries and then you need to stick to them because this is where people also get caught. So they send the wonderful email that says, I'm no longer texting with you about any of these issues. Um, and they last for a week and then next thing you know, they fall back into the trap of 
texting on those issues and that's the end of your boundary and you've sort of undone all of your good work. So you work out what are the things that I need to communicate about, what are the things that we're constantly in conflict about and what can I get rid of? And I don't have to, you can say this yourself, I don't have to respond to everything Um, or I can choose when I respond and I can choose how I respond. I think modern technology has added a whole new dimension to conflict when it comes to separating couples, particularly the wonderful mobile telephone um, and text messages and emails that can just come through, you know, all the time. Yeah. And something I, I often... You go, sorry. And it makes it so easy for people. So easy and so hard because, you know, the conflict's with you all the time. And I harp back to, you know, 10, 15 years ago when personally I didn't have a mobile phone that travelled with me 24-7 and somehow I managed to live a pretty wholesome life. Yeah. And and I think, you know, this is something, some of the tips I give my clients is set up a separate email account. Set up an email account that is just for that issue. Um, just use that that email account, take it off your phone and only log into it at the times that you want to deal with that communication. Yeah. Set up, if you need to, a separate mobile telephone number or choose not to communicate by text message, but set whatever boundaries you want to set. And the other thing I'd really encourage people to do is engage in some form of mediation or counselling. So have a formal space where you can have these really difficult conversations and try and together put boundaries around them. Yeah. Now, that's obviously going to require a level of cooperation between two people to actually come to the table and have the conversation but that's the place to have it it's not by text it's not by email it's with professional support sitting at a table ideally or even by shuttle whatever it is but being in the same place at the same time and literally trying to iron out those points of contention yeah and having having that person to just keep you on track and not letting it get out of hand and out of control with exactly it's not necessary exactly now you're and a just sort of forecasting short term yeah just forecasting short term can make a big difference. So just, you know, looking at that change over the next 12 weeks and then coming back to the mediation table or the counselling table and saying, okay, this worked well, this didn't work well, let's try again, let's do this. Um, in America, they use something called post-separation parenting coaches, which, you know, very American, but I actually don't mind the concept. It's, again, that idea of having a third party that you can go to that literally their job is to help a couple get some clarity on these issues and then move forward with them. And I think it's... Sometimes that's just what you need yeah. someone else to say, how about you try this? <laughs> yeah, totally. I know when, um, when my partner and I split up, we'd been seeing a counsellor for, you know, a year or so before that anyway. But after we split up, we continued to see the counsellor for a couple of months just to work out a sort of co-parenting arrangement and how this was going to work. And I think it was really good. Not that it necessarily at the time was properly put into place felt good but <laughs> yeah. yeah but it was good to kind of work out a plan and since then it is now you know it is working what we discussed with that counselor at the time which is a good solution for us because we live in different states is um now what is put into practice and it works quite well i have to say so it is good if you can work that out yeah do you think that mediation because you're a mediator as well do you think would you advise people to go to mediation even if everything is very amicable and they, you know, do get off to a good start and they do get along really well and they do communicate well? Is mediation always a good idea regardless or is it really only for those people who are struggling? 
I think, look, I think mediation is such a great process for a whole range of different families and different situations. Um, if you've got a scenario that you're talking about where people are largely agreed, things are okay, um, you may not need, need mediation and that family may just need some formality, particularly in terms of financial arrangements. There are some reasons why legally you would want to document financial arrangements, so property settlements and those sorts of things. With parenting, perhaps not so much. So you may not need mediation. You might just need to consult with a lawyer and get some assistance in drafting the settlement documents. Yeah. Um, the flip side of the coin, though, is I find mediation is so helpful for any point where there is a point of contention, um, and particularly in circumstances where you've got a, a difference in power and control between couples. And um, sometimes there's, I think, a view and a concern that mediation won't be a safe space for someone who perhaps is more vulnerable. Um, and my view is different. My view is that mediation is one of the most beneficial processes for circumstances where you've got a more vulnerable person because you can really tailor that process and you can ideally empower that process. That should be the mediator's job is to empower that person to be able to advocate for themselves, make good decisions, have the right people in the room with them to help them out. Yeah. Um, and there are many different ways of doing a mediation. So, you, you know, the sort of, again, stereotypical TV version of a mediation where everyone's sitting around a table and having difficult conversations is one way of mediating. But many of the mediations that I'm involved in, ironically, the couple hardly speak. And, you know, it's done through keeping people separate but enabling a space where they can communicate to the mediator. And, again, where you've got someone who is more vulnerable, that can be a really helpful way of enabling them to express themselves in a safe space and still find a solution yeah. because the alternate is the more traditional legal process, which often involves the court process, which I'd suggest is incredibly disempowering for everybody and particularly for a, a more vulnerable party. So does a happy divorce mean avoiding the court process? I think it does, to be yeah. honest. I think it does. And the reason for that is once you're in a court process, and the way our legal system has been constructed, and, uh, and I'm not critical of this, the legal system has its purposes, um, but it's an adversarial system. So the way it works is that I, as a lawyer, am advocating on behalf of my client, trying to advance their interests, which by its nature pits my client against their former partner. And so very quickly you see letters, documents, things being written that you know, promote the interests of, say, my client, but at the same time negate the interests of their former partner. Yeah. And there's very few people that go through the court process that would come out the other end and say to you, you know, I, I felt like I was well-respected and yeah. <laughs> said good things <laughs> That was about a great me. experience. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful for that three years of my life that I'll yeah. never get back. And, you know, the other challenge with the court process is you're obviously handing the decision over to someone else. And, mm. Again, I'm not critical of family court judges. They do amazing jobs with what they have. But when it comes to my children and my you know, assets, I would much prefer to be the person that makes the decision about what happens because I like to think that I know my daughter better than anyone else um, and I'd like to think that my husband knows her better than anyone else. And I think we're in the best place to make those decisions as opposed to someone that we don't know at all. So I think it's being mindful of what the court process delivers and Sometimes families end up in the court process, I think, for the wrong reasons, thinking that they're going to um, almost be proved, you know, to be the right person or proved that they were wronged and somehow this sense of justice will prevail. Um, and the family court process is not about that. 
And mm. I think it's it's a very, you know, long and expensive and difficult process that for some families is necessary. For the majority, I would say you want to try and do everything you can to avoid being there. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the whole idea that your life and your children's lives are in someone else's hands is quite scary. And you really, like, this is probably going to sound really bad, but from my experience, what I've seen and heard is that it really just depends on the judge that you get, you know, and anything, I mean, it's just, I don't know. Anyway, it's kind of scary. I won't go into too much detail about, but you know, it's just, um, it is scary that some, that your children's lives and your lives that, you know, you just have no say over whatever this judge decides on the day. Yeah. And, you know, judges and courts decide things premised on evidence. And, you know, you and I could talk for an hour about what legal evidence is versus what colloquial, you know, families say life should be about. And that's the problem. The legal process, quite rightly, is full of rules, regulations, tests, standards um, that for the lay person make no sense and are incredibly confusing. And I must say, for a legal person at times, you go, really? <laughs> like, why is that like that? Um, but there's there's a many a good reason why the legal process operates the way it does. The challenge is that when you go to put your life into a document and then present it in a court, the stuff that we think as human beings is important and should be relevant and should um, feature in the decision-making, the law doesn't necessarily agree um and so you you know you find yourself very quickly in a situation where you're thinking well hang on why is my lawyer not doing this or not saying this or not including this piece of information um and often it's because it just doesn't fall into the box that is called evidence and that's the key so i think law courts so helpful in so many cases but for most of us you are handing over control Mm. and that's risky so why not retain that control So the best way to avoid the court process, apart from mediation, is there anything else we can do to avoid that? Yeah. So the other processes that I think are really helpful um, is mediation. There's another process called collaborative practice. That's something I practice a lot. And collaborative practice involves a couple agreeing from the outset that they'll do everything they can to not go to court and just focus on problem solving. Um, And they still engage lawyers, but they engage collaborative lawyers. They can also engage financial professionals, child experts, family counsellors. So you can sort of build this wonderful bespoke team of experts that can then help a couple over time work out what's right for them and unravel things and I've found that is a really great process for families that are wanting to retain control but focus more on what matters to them than perhaps what the law says should matter to them Um, and the other way ultimately to stay out of court is is just to try and communicate as much as you can yourself with your former partner which in the early stages can be really difficult but again over time can potentially become easier so just taking some time dealing with the emotion understanding the emotion that your former partner is experiencing and then trying to keep the communication pathways open um, and you know together finding a way to talk about things as you move forward yeah Absolutely. And I always think, I always say to people as well, treat it like a business relationship, you know, just don't engage Yes. a personal conversation, just be respectful, be polite, be civil, you know, just, or as if you're speaking to someone in a restaurant, you know, like you're not going to go and start screaming at them. And Yeah. Um, 
going through yeah. divorce. Which is easier said than done. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And I think it's something that really takes just practice, practice, practice. And over time, it gets easier, definitely. But yeah, it takes a lot of time. It's for me, even it's, you know, it's been four years now and it's still a working progress, but it is getting better. It is getting easier. So you've just got yes. to it. <laughs> By the time my daughter's 18 in 14 years, it'll be yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You'll be sorted. Yeah. <laughs> so as anyone knows, um, going through a separation or a divorce can be incredibly stressful. I know you've done a lot of work and research into sort of happiness and um, you know, stress-free sort of living. What are, what are some ways that we can look after ourselves through this process yeah so I would start with your health um, and that's that's got to be the priority and the example or the the it's the word I'm looking for the quote or the statement that's used all the time is the one that we're on the airplane and the you know the air the air hostess says you need to fit your own mask first before you assist anyone around you and this is the key so if you're not healthy if you're not looking after yourself it's going to be very very difficult to look after your kids or to support anyone else around you and particularly with women we don't tend to look after ourselves as a priority and particularly when things get a bit difficult that's the first thing that goes and everyone starts you know women start worrying about their kids they're worrying about everyone else and not focusing on themselves so if there was one thing to focus on i would say it's your health because if you're health is okay everything else is so much easier to manage flip side of the coin is if your health is not okay it's near impossible to do anything else so that's the basics that's making sure that you're eating well it's avoiding alcohol it's avoiding all of those wonderful things that you know we think at the time are going to be a great way of just escaping from everything that's going on but they actually create more problems than it's worth Um, it's exercising and so you don't need to start running marathons but just getting out every day walking doing whatever you like to do but focusing on your health and making that a priority I think at this time in life is is so important yeah Um, the second thing that I'd be trying to do is to be kind to myself so that means remembering where you're at not expecting too much of yourself if you're feeling overwhelmed really sad you know, angry, whatever the emotion is, allow yourself to feel that emotion. Don't try and pretend that you're okay when you're not and get some help. So help comes in many forms as well. Um, There's professional help. So I'm a big advocate for speaking with psychologists, speaking with counsellors. If you can't find someone that works for you, then keep hunting until you can. Finding someone who's got expertise in dealing with relationship breakdown, I think, is really important as well. Um, And if you're not interested in or you don't feel like you need to speak with a professional, that's okay. But make sure you've got some people around you that you can call on if you need need to. Um, And those people, I'd suggest, need to be ones that can tell you when you're going too far. So I always think about this in my own friendship circles. I've always got a couple of people around me that I feel will tell me when, when, you know, I'm doing something silly or I'm pushing the world too far or I'm just, you know, not doing the best thing by myself. And they're the friends that you need on your team at this time, this at this moment, not the ones that are just going to go, good on you, Clarissa, yeah, that's right, you should do that, the cheer squad people. You need the people that are going to go, why do you think that's a good idea? <laughs> what are you hoping to achieve by doing that? Yeah. Why will, you know, how will that look in a year's time? Um, that can just force you to really think, a bit more carefully about the decisions that you're making and what's going on. So having some really good supports around you, I think is really important, being kind to yourself, focusing on your health. And then I would add in um, having what I call some distractions and distractions for me generally are good things. So 
you know, sometimes I have clients that plan a holiday, for example, Mm. or even on a more sort of minor weekly basis. I had a client once that had never had a pedicure, which to me was just shocking because I'm <laughs> someone that if I ever need a reward, I go and have a pedicure. So I was like, yeah. what? Good best. Um, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so a week after she met with me, I was like, you need to just go and do this. Seriously, this needs to be something that you need to work into your life and it's just <laughs> going to make things a little bit easier. But that's the sort of stuff I'm talking about. So whatever it is that just makes you feel a little bit calmer, like you, you know, something to look forward to. So it might be a massage, it might be a pedicure, it might be a holiday, it might be going for a bush walk, it might be going to the beach. There's a lot of this sort of stuff that you can do that costs absolutely nothing. So don't tell me that, you know, that's all expensive and I can't afford it right now. Um, fun can be free, but it's thinking creatively and thinking, what do I love doing and what can I do? Um, and I guess my final thing is sometimes starting something new is not a bad idea as well. So probably not a week after your divorce and separation should you start taking up 50 new hobbies. <laughs> but a few months down the track, it's probably a really good thing to go, you know what, I'm going to start something new. I'm going to join a dance class or I'm going to go do a painting class or I'm going to do photography or I'm going to learn French or I'm going to do something that I didn't do before particularly if you've now found yourself in a situation where your kids are not with you all the time. Because I think this is one of the most confronting things about divorce and separations. You get used to the fact that your kids are there. You may not always be home at five o'clock in the afternoon, but you know your kids are home. You know you're going to see them even though they're asleep. There's something beautifully comforting about having your children under your roof. Yeah. And, you know, usually divorce and separation means that there'll be periods in the week where your kids aren't going to be home and it's normal to feel sad and lonely in those moments. So they're the times that I would say plan something, do something different, do something for yourself, set it up so that you're not sitting at home and feeling, you know, feeling lonely, set it up so that you are doing something that perhaps takes you a little bit out of your comfort zone. I'm a big advocate for that too. Not too far out of your comfort zone, just enough. <laughs> yeah. You can start to meet some new people. Try something new. You might hate it, but hey, what have you lost? Yeah, exactly. It is. It's very, very hard being away from your kids at first. And I guess it is something that does become easier over time, but it is hard. So yeah, I always try and when I don't have my daughter, I definitely try and plan lots of things and do things that I can't normally do when I have her, you know, because she's only four. So it's always good to, yeah, do some new things and keep busy. <laughs> I just wanted to Go ask. Go to the movies. Yeah. Go exactly. to dinner. Yeah, exactly. So good. <laughs> Stuff you can't do with a four-year-old unless you're willing to see Disney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask you one last question. When people are looking for a lawyer, what are some things they should sort of be looking for? Because a lot of people, they struggle with this and they sort of like, oh, I don't know. I've spoken to four or five lawyers. I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know. I just didn't really gel with that person. Or, you know, what are the sort of top things they should really be asking themselves if, if they're a good sort of match for them? Yeah. And I think that's it. You need to ask yourself, am I a good match with this lawyer? So for me, it's very, very like picking a doctor um, because with a family lawyer particularly, you're going to be sharing some very um, personal and emotional information. And if you feel like you can't have that sort of conversation with your lawyer, then I'd suggest that that's probably not the lawyer for you. Yeah. So there's, I'd be, if it was me, I'd be looking for someone who is a specialist in family law. So those of us practicing in different areas of law, we can undertake um, 
like basically exams that are horrid that enable us to ultimately, if we pass them, say, I'm a specialist in this area of law. So that might be a good place to start because anyone who is what's called an accredited specialist in family law will have a minimum of five years experience and will have done these horrendous exams that are really hard to pass that generally say that person is a specialist in this area. So that might be your first sort of you know, litmus test for is this the person I want to see. Now, not everyone who's not a specialist is suddenly not a good family lawyer, but it's just one way. If you had no place to start, that might be a good place to start. Um, asking friends and family for referrals is not a bad thing as well. And then I would go and obviously meet with a lawyer and I'd be trying to find out what sort of divorce experience they're going to provide you. So, for example, if you're looking for a calm, considered, staying out of court type divorce and the only thing that the lawyer is willing to talk to you about is a court-type divorce, then you can probably assume that that's the sort of divorce experience you're going to have. Um, So if you're looking for someone that is going to focus on keeping you out of the courts, then you're probably looking for a family lawyer who is a collaborative family lawyer. So again, that person's done specific additional training to be able to call themselves that or a mediator. And don't be afraid, this day and age of online research, you can find out so much information. So don't be afraid to do a bit of digging around. Get a feel for the person. Get a feel for what information exists about them. Um, I think you do really need to be comfortable with the lawyer that you're working with. And our law is largely the same nationwide. So even if the lawyer isn't in your city or state, doesn't mean that you may not be able to work with them. So, for example, based in Brisbane, I work with clients all over the country um, thanks to wonderful things like phone and Skype and all of this. And I'm not the only lawyer doing that. So sometimes, you know, you you can think outside of the box in terms of your own area. Um, And you might think, well, you know, a friend of mine had a divorce with this particular person in, say, Sydney, and I live in Melbourne, but if that lawyer should be able to assist you. So don't feel like you need to just go with the person down the road. Um, There are many different ways that you can work with lawyers. And I think coming into that conversation with a lawyer and saying, this is the sort of divorce that I would like, Um, and seeing whether they're amenable to that. Yeah, fantastic. Awesome tips. Okay, great. So I better let you get going, but I'm going to put all the details for your website because you've got your Brisbane Family Law Centre. Brisbane Family Law Centre, yep. (laughs) Put that on and then the, the blog as well, which is the Happy Family Lawyer blog. And I'll put those links up there. And how can people follow you on social media? Yeah, so probably Facebook and Instagram are the two main favourite platforms of mine. I'm a big fan of Instagram at the moment because it's just so easy, but I'm I'm the happy family lawyer on both of those platforms, um, both on Facebook and on Instagram. Excellent. Well, I'll put those links in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate that. I know a lot of women will get a lot out of that. It's very good, very good advice that you've given today. Thank you so much. Thanks, Julia. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Clarissa. There's some really good things to take away there. And, you know, even if you are well into the separation process, it's never too late to put some of these practices into place, you know, to really help you get that sort of positive co-parenting relationship going. I'm going to put all of Clarissa's details, her social media on her website, details for her family law practice and her blog in the show notes. And of course, check out Single Mother Survival Guide website, which is singlemothersurvivalguide.com. And I would really love it if you guys could rate this podcast. Um, If you've got an iPhone, this is what you have to do. You click on your podcast app 
And then rather than going to my podcast, if you have subscribed, just go to search on the bottom right hand side and type in single mother survival guide and then the podcast will come up. You just click right on the bottom. So below the episodes, there is the cover art. So you click on the cover art and then you can that you will see the top sort of tabs, I guess, are details, reviews, and related. So if you click on reviews, you can then press write a review. Thank you so much, by the way, for everybody who has already written a review or rated this podcast. I really appreciate that. The reason why this is, by the way, sorry, I know I'm jumping around a bit, is because it helps new single parents find this podcast a lot easier. So anyway, as I was saying, if you click on write a review, you can then put in your iTunes password. You don't have to write your name if you don't want to. But yeah, and then you can either rate this podcast or write a review. So I'd be so grateful if you could do that. And I will speak to you guys next week. Next week's episode is so great. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. It's with a woman called Marcia Watts, and she is a counselor who specializes in repartnering and blended families. And I had such a great chat with her, and I know you guys are going to love that episode. So look out for that, which will be released next Wednesday morning, uh, Australian Eastern Standard Time. And I'll speak to you guys then. Okay, bye. Bye.